back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Matt Fox from Boston University. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Haley? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this episode. It is my friend and doctoral dissertation advisor, Dr. Jay Kaufman, here with us today, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm super looking forward to this conversation, too. Good. I'm glad. So as most of you know by this point, we are dedicating our entire second season of the podcast to the new edition of Modern Epidemiology. Today, as I mentioned, we have Dr. Kaufman here with us to have a casual conversation about causal inference. Dr. Kaufman is a professor and the graduate director in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at McGill University in Montreal. His work focuses on social epidemiology, analytic methodology, and causal inference, and he kind of dabbles in a variety of health outcomes, such as perinatal outcomes, cardiovascular, psychiatric, and infectious diseases. He's also an editor at the journal Epidemiology and a co-editor of the textbook Methods in Social Epidemiology. He is also the most recent past president of SER. Jay was actually the first person that introduced me to causal inference when I took his intermediate epi course, and then somehow I later convinced him to be my doctoral supervisor. I remember the very first paper I read on the topic was one he assigned by Maldonado in Greenland, involving a conversation with some kind of godlike person about estimating causal effects. It's still one of my most favorite papers of all time. I still remember that paper very well. So I wanted to welcome Jay to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Hi. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I, I don't think I can have a godlike conversation with you about causal inference, but happy to discuss the textbook and the papers. Then I, I think we're done here. If yeah. You, if you can't do that, I mean... <laughs> yeah, quick and easy. So Jay, you were the first person that introduced me to causal inference. Can you tell us about your first introduction to causal inference? When did that happen? Well, I, I think that all of us have been working with causal inference since the time that we were first born and aware and navigating the world and trying to figure out how things work. <clears throat> In uh, the first edition of Rothman's textbook, he talks about a kid with a light switch figuring out that turning the light switch on has an effect on the lights. And so causal inference goes way back formal causal inference, I, I guess I encountered as a, as a graduate student for the first time and had no idea what those papers meant. And it took many years for things to sink in. But I came of age in, in the early 1990s when I was a graduate student. And that was when the causal inference revolution was really happening. So I kind of got it in real time. Robbins and Greenland articles were just coming out in the late 80s and people were chewing on those. And it was starting to enter the curriculum in the early 90s when I was a graduate student. So it was just the right time time to get into this field from the from the ground up. Matt, what about you? Well, so it would be the, the same in that it was during my doctoral training. You, you're always thinking about causation from the time you start you know, your first epi methods course, but, but we didn't get into, I think, formal causal models and the assumptions around causal modeling until my doctoral training. And you know, that was a, a little bit later than Jay's, but not that much. So there was still a lot still being worked out and you know, new stuff coming out all the time that made it really fun to witness as it was happening. Isn't it amazing how much things have changed since then? How these topics are introduced right at the outset in most doctoral education programs now? It's It's been such a huge change in such a short amount of time. Yeah, imagine teaching the intro epi course in the 1980s, where there's no DAGs and there's no formal causal inference models, and you're teaching the Hill criteria and things like that. Like It, it, it was a, an entirely different approach back then. So before we get started on the, the content of the episode, we want to ask you a few questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So the, the first question that comes to mind is, you know, next week, or I think actually this week, the Olympics are starting. And if you could choose to compete in an Olympic sport, either summer or winter, what would it be? 
So I, I guess the premise of your question is that I would actually be able to do that thing. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. In, yep. in real life, exactly. I, I mm -hmm. couldn't actually do any of those things. But I, I guess if of I could course. choose to be able to do any of those activities that, you know, most of them like, you know, running from place to place really fast or swimming from place to place, really, those are actually boring, mundane things because you just go from one place to another. But the really cool thing is the pole vault because it's like from a cartoon. <laughs> like you're, you're taking this huge bendy, bendy stick and you're sticking it in the ground and propelling yourself way into the air it's like something that would happen in the cartoon like not something that would happen in real life and the fact that people can do that just blows my mind so it's so it's so funny you say this because i was just watching pole vaulting the trials the other day and thinking to myself who was the first person who thought this will be fun let's try this <laughs> Yeah, well, imagine if people could do that. Like, you, you know, we wouldn't be able to build Trump's border wall on the southern border. People would just pull mm -hmm. vault over it. You know, Good like point. If, if that was a, a common human ability to be able to do that. It's absurd. I actually tried it. I, I ran track in high school and I was looking at these pole vaulters thinking, oh, that looks really cool. But it turns out to be really hard because you have to grab this pole and then invert your body so that your feet are above your head. Mm -hmm. And that actually is the hard part. Like, it's not actually easy to put your feet above your head. I don't think anyone would have thought, hmm, pole vault, it sounds really easy. There's other things that, you know, seem easier. <laughs> yeah. If you can run really fast, you can run really fast. Pole vault, mm, not one of them that I would think super easy. Yeah. Um, all right, good answer. I didn't expect that, but, but very well thought out answer. Given that you live in Montreal, I guess I'll ask this question. Would you rather live in a place where it only snows and it's freezing cold all of the year or a place where the temperature never falls below 100 degrees of course using american terms 100 degrees yeah i mean it's not a counterfactual question because i do live in a place where it's snowing and below freezing all the time and it's ironic because i, I would much prefer to be in a place that's over 100 degrees all the time but i used to be i used to be at north carolina university of north carolina where it's over 100 degrees all the time and for some crazy reason i actually moved from the place i would rather be to the climate that I always dreaded. And here I am wearing a coat 11 months out of the year. So yeah, it's uh, from the observational data, you might reach the opposite conclusion, but my preference is actually for the North Carolina climate. What an excellent segue into the topic that we're gonna be talking about today. So to get into the real meat of our conversation, uh, we're talking about chapters two and three in the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. And these chapters give the readers a broad overview of the methods and concepts of causal inference. The third chapter introduces formal causal models. There's a lot of content in each of these chapters Matt and I have already recorded two episodes talking about these chapters. So we're going to ask you today just some of the main points that jumped out at us that we'd love to hear your thoughts on. So the first thing that Matt and I talked about at length when we discussed the chapter was this idea of Hill's considerations or criteria and whether it's gotten a bad rap. So sometimes people use them or talk about them as sort of checklist to determine whether an association they're interested in might be causal. Do you teach Hill's considerations in your courses when you're talking about causal? causal inference. And when you do, what sort of disclaimer do you use or what sort of disclaimer do you attach when you're talking to these ideas to students? Uh, I guess you took my course. So you know that I, I don't really focus on the Hill list in my doctoral course, but I probably should. I think that it has its place in the modern epi textbook in part as a reaction to the way that epidemiology was taught traditionally. Like we were talking earlier about the fact that before this causal inference revolution, 
evolution in the 1990s. This was sort of the mainstay of, of causal inference in an epidemiology course. And so I think when Ken Rothman was writing his textbook, he was kind of reacting against that normative approach by listing all the reasons why these are not criteria. And of course, Hill didn't use that word. He called them considerations or viewpoints or something like that. But I think the inclusion in the text had that very important role of responding to the way that epidemiology had been taught. Nowadays, I don't think that at least graduate school epidemiology for epidemiology majors is taught with that kind of a focus. And so in that sense, it might not have such an important role in the textbook. But thinking about each of these considerations or viewpoints, they are actually the kinds of things that we do think about, even if informally. Like, I do think there's a lot of value to each one of these things, and they represent the kind of thinking we naturally do and the way that we discuss the strength of evidence from different studies. And you can hear these in debates all the time even from people who never heard about Hill's list and, and thought about these as some kind of a, an established list or checklist. So I do think they have a role, but the, the discussion in the textbook is appropriate in showing that except for time order, none of them are necessary conditions. They're considerations. They're things to think about. There are many substantive situations where you would not expect things to work in this way. It's, it's very easy to criticize something like strength. You know, there are a lot of things in the world that actually have weak effects. And that's the reality. You know, when you do a GWAS, if you found a strong effect, you, you made some kind of a mistake. Like all of the genetic effects are actually weak or almost all the ones that you're going to find. So there are many situations like that where the truth is, is different, but you know something substantively about what you're studying. And so you know what to look for. And the same thing is true for dose response and, and the other considerations. So I, I, I think these are, this is the right list. These are good things to talk about with graduate students and in all our professional discussions. This is the, uh, the right kind of approach to take. When I first learned about the modern epi take on this list, my, my reaction was it was kind of liberating. It was kind of like, oh, everything you were taught previously is wrong, which of course is not what it says in the text, but that, you know, when you're a student coming across this for the first time, you're like, yeah, all this is all wrong and I can use this to, to disprove everything that you're saying. But what I have found over time is I've come definitely shifted back to it, keeping those criticisms in mind, but recognizing, as you say, that these are reasonable things to be thinking about with the with the exception of one or two which like specificity has never totally made sense to me as a as a criteria to be in there well, it makes sense in some context, you know, like if the malaria parasite gives you malaria, then it should not also give you schistosomiasis. There are some settings in which it is the right consideration, but there are famous examples in the history of epidemiologic thought where too much of a focus on specificity actually led people astray. So it does have its its place, its proper place, but it should not be extended beyond its domain of application. Are there specific examples of that where it's, where it's led us down the wrong road? Yeah. The story I really like about that is the story that Charlie Poole tells in his paper about how we got risk ratio. And this story is that when people were studying the effect of smoking on lung cancer, they had this idea from Koch's postulates and from Hill's criteria. I think this was actually before Hill. So it was from Koch's postulates that if it were a cause, it would only cause one thing. And then they were really stymied by the observation that it also seemed to cause cardiovascular disease. But then they noticed that it caused cardiovascular disease if you looked on the absolute scale. But if you look on the ratio scale, the effect on cardiovascular disease was actually quite small. And if you kind of squinted a little bit and looked at it sideways, it kind of went away. So they thought, well, if we focus on the ratio scale, then it really only just causes lung cancer. And this, according to Charlie Poole, this is why we have this tradition now of being so focused on ratio measures of effect. 
just because of this misunderstanding that cigarettes should only cause one thing when in fact they cause just about everything. That's so interesting. That's a very good example. I never really thought about that. Matt and I discussed specificity and neither of us had as concise a reason why it was actually a valuable you know, item to keep in the list. So that's a, that's a great point. I agree with Matt and you as well that I've kind of come full circle on these considerations from my initial modern epi introduction where they're not particularly useful to, yeah, we should think about these things. And in that thought process, I wonder, are they really that different than the what we call assumptions of causal inference that we talk about in the context of more modern approaches, consistency, exchangeability, no interference, etc.? Aren't those a similar type of list with different items on it? Aren't we doing the same type of thing with that more modern approach? I think that one of the strengths of the Hill checklist or Hill viewpoints, whatever you want to call them, is that they do, they are very prescient in putting front and center considerations of subject matter. When you talk about positivity or exchangeability, these are very statistical, they're stated in terms that have nothing to do with subject matter. But when you talk about plausibility or you talk about coherence or analogy, you have to be talking about with, with a great deal of subject matter knowledge. And this is you know, from back in the 60s, but it comes to fruition in our use of DAGs to represent our background subject matter knowledge. And we realize now that we can't do causal inference without relying on that subject matter knowledge. And that's present already in the Hill list, that you have to know something about what you're studying. You can't just rely on statistical assumptions. So let me ask you this question then. Do you agree or disagree with this quote? Causal inference does not require fancy methods or analytic tools. It's the assumptions required for causal inference that are the most important thing to consider. Well, yeah, I guess it depends on what your definition of fancy is. I don't know what makes something fancy, but there's no doubt that there are great examples of causal inference that involved very, very simple models or perhaps no model at all. You know, the the very famous paper that made the link between DES and vaginal cancer in the early 1970s was a two-by-two table with an empty cell. And someone said, hmm, it looks like you don't get vaginal cancer unless your mother was exposed to DES. That didn't involve any fancy assumptions about exchangeability or well, or maybe it did in, in some kind of subtle way, but the raw data was enough for people to reach a conclusion that it looks like you're not going to get this thing unless you you have this exposure. We have lots of models that help us reach conclusions in situations that are a little bit more ambiguous, but there are some situations where the raw data is enough to tell you. We have randomized trials to show us that the mRNA vaccines prevent COVID-19. But just from the raw data, like right now, 99% of all the people in hospital and dying from COVID-19 are unvaccinated people in the United States. You don't need any fancy causal inference model to come to the conclusion that the vaccine is actually helping people there. So there, there are many situations, I think, like that where the raw data speaks for itself. Couldn't agree more. I'm curious, though, because those are examples of cases where the reason why the raw data speaks so clearly is because the effect sizes are so large that it's, it's very easy to see. And sure, those kinds of things do still happen. And obviously, the, the example you just gave is a very contemporary one. But most of the things that we were studying in epidemiology, I've always heard, I forget who the quote comes from, but the only things that you can study in epidemiology are a relative risk of one, a relative risk of two, or really big. And all the really big stuff is the stuff that we've already figured out because it was was the obvious stuff. And so now we're in the era of relative risk between one and two. You know, does that still hold that we can do things with simple models or are we always going to need fancier, fancier again? 
whatever, however you define that, to get at the causal effects. Yeah, I, I agree with you that sort of the, the low-hanging fruit is the easy stuff. We do still encounter examples like that now and then, but we it's do. true that you can't yep. plan your epi career around coming across a, an odds ratio of 10. Like, it's just not going to happen every day. And it's true that I, I, I agree with you that when the effect is much more subtle, and probably in the real world, most things are much more subtle effects, then you do need a fair amount of smoothing of the data and to rely on some reasonable assumptions in order to kind of tease that pattern out of the noise because you have a much weaker signal and much more noise and you really want to try to visualize that pattern from amidst all the chaos of the, the other factors that are moving values around in the data set. So yes, I, I agree with you that some modeling then becomes increasingly important as you're dealing with subtler and subtler signals. This discussion about fanciness, it sounds a bit silly to say that word, fanciness, but I do find that for folks that haven't been trained in sort of this new school way of thinking, they sometimes, in my experience, view causal inference as this intimidating category, this particularly methodologically complex, you know, you really need to be good at modeling or statistics or these complicated things to be able to understand causal inference. And I think if I'm understanding what you're saying, Jay, is that that's not actually always the case. To some degree, you may need that, but ultimately it is an issue of understanding and thinking about the problems potentially more than it is being able to code something, you know, or or run quote fancy models. Yeah, I don't know what qualifies something as fancy, so this is something maybe we have to discuss, but I do think the, the reliance on some assumption, the plausibility of that assumption could be questionable even in a, in a model that is a very traditional one. Like an ordinary least squares regression has this assumption that there's a straight line, or a logistic regression as well has the assumption that the logits fall exactly on a straight line. That's a pretty severe thing to believe about the real world, that all the logits line up right on this straight line. Why would that be true? Like that's a very fancy assumption. And models are made up of a lot of these kinds of fancy assumptions, that the errors have a certain distribution and that the observations are IID, that they're identically distributed no matter where you are on the x-axis and that they don't affect the the individuals don't affect each other so that they're independent. Like there's a long list of things you have to believe to literally believe the model. (laughs) Now, one thing that's going on is that some models are more robust to violations, minor violations of those kinds of assumptions. So it turns out, for example, that the linear model, OLS, is very, very robust. So even when those errors are not really normally distributed and even when it's not really a straight line, like it still works pretty well. So using a relatively robust method like that that doesn't completely fall apart can be a real advantage. There are other models models that require you believe things like uh, instrumental variables, for example, where you make some exclusion restriction assumption. And then if that turns out to be false, even a little bit, the whole thing falls apart and you get some wildly wrong answer. So you need to be afraid of fancy methods where fancy means if you're a little bit wrong here, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the null. Like you're going to end up completely far from where you want to be. But using, whether they're simple or complicated statistical models, using models that are relatively robust in the sense that they give you a little bit of room for making misspecification errors, that could be very advantageous. So this it's a little bit of a sidetrack here, but you made this reference to the assumptions and when the assumptions can be violated. To me, one of the many values of the textbook, Modern Epidemiology, for me personally, and in how I use it for teaching students, is to say, okay, you've learned about these approaches a lot of these methods, the study designs in your intro, maybe in your intermediate textbook. 
But now let's actually go back and think about what the assumptions are for all of those methods that you previously learned to be valid. And let's think about whether or not you're actually likely to be meeting them in the research that you're doing. And if you're not, then let's think about how we can go a bit further. To me, that has just been why this textbook has been so valuable to me personally. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think there is a, a doctoral level of thinking about it, and the professional level of thinking about epidemiology that has to be a little bit more subtle than that, mm. because the assumption is not on or off. It's not like, okay, it's false. So this whole thing falls apart. It's really a question of, you know, are you close enough? It's more like horseshoes and hand grenades or whatever, in the <laughs> sense that you want to be pretty close to being reasonable. And if you're a little bit off, you're still doing pretty well. And so we really need to think about the implications of, of an assumption not being quite met. And this is where I made a distinction between things like if you're a little bit off, the whole thing falls apart versus if you're a little bit off, then your answer is a little bit off, but you're still in the right ballpark. Mm -hmm. So getting graduate students to appreciate that, I think, is a little bit more important than just like, oh, that assumption is false, so I, I'm done here. And and that's where I think, you know, I, I love the modern epi textbook, and that's a great one. But the other book by Lash and Fox yeah, and whoever those other people are about sensitivity analyses, yeah, that has a really useful approach because it says, okay, let's assume that, you know, <laughs> our assumptions are not right here. That something is broken in this model. How broken is it? How, how badly are we doing here? How far off are we? And in the real world where you're almost sure that things are going to be broken, that that's the really important question. Once you get to the doctoral level, the professional level, you can't believe in all the assumptions of the model anymore. You really need to focus on what could be broken and how bad is that. I think it's a fantastic way to frame it and certainly something I'm going to work into the way that I think about teaching this stuff. So, I mean, I am probably the number one fan of, of that other textbook you're mentioning. Um, you know, oh, no, no, I am. Well, you're one of the authors, so it's, it's a conflict. <laughs> I'm just a genuine fan of the textbook. And I tell everyone that they should go out and get this textbook because I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with that, that approach about sensitivity analyses, as you said. But, you know, when it comes to, quote, causal inference as a category, most of the time you can't do those types of sensitivity analyses for some of the assumptions, right? So we had this discussion the other day about well-defined intervention and sort of the consistency assumption. And in some instances, it's not possible to do sensitivity analyses with the data that you have available. You could, I guess, come up with all sorts of plausible things if you wanted to, maybe real life things, maybe totally made up things, but that approach doesn't necessarily line up perfectly with the, the causal inference assumptions that I understand them. Yeah, some some of those assumptions are more qualitative. Yeah. Uh, th th there is some technical literature on how to think about poorly defined exposures as like a mixture of exposures. And yeah. then once you start to define that mixture, then you could think about how an intervention on one of those, you know, what the bounds on that might be. And so I, I think there might be some approaches that get at the consistency assumption in a, in a more formal way like that. Certainly there are for the parts of the consistency assumption assumption that has to do with interference between units. There are certainly sensitivity models that are developed to how far off you could be if uh, one unit is affecting another unit, where you have interference, for example. Getting back to the Hill list, I think one of the, again, one of the prescient things about that list is that it's still the case in the normative reporting of biomedical research that the alternate hypothesis that we are accustomed to presenting as the single alternative hypothesis is sampling variability. We say like, oh, here's our odds ratio 
our adjusted odds ratio in New England Journal of Medicine. And here's the p-value to show that I didn't get this result just because of taking a bad sample. And you notice that in the Hill list, that's not one of the alternate explanations. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all these considerations of temporality and plausibility, and it's all subject matter. It's not, oh, maybe I just drew a bad sample. So I, I do think that it gets us back to the idea that there are things that can go wrong in making the relationship between an observed association and a causal inference. There are things that can go wrong, and we have names for these biases now that Hill didn't have, confounding, selection bias, information bias, things like that. There are things that can go wrong, and those have to be evaluated in substantive terms. Like you can't just say, oh, maybe there was confounding. That's a weakness. No, you have to think, well, what, what could that confounding be, and how bad could it be? And that's the kind of discussion you can have with the methods that talked about in the Lash book, those kind of sensitivity analysis methods. So those are kind of quantitative approaches, but they have to be based in subject matter knowledge. Your mention of interference makes me think of a particular question that I have, which is, is it pronounced sattva or sutva? Well, I've never actually heard Don Rubin say the word himself, so I, I only know that I say sattva and everybody I've met says sattva, but I don't think you would know the answer to that question unless you asked Rubin himself, since he's the one who came up with it. But I, I do believe it's pronounced sattva. Is it gif or jif? I've always okay. said gif, but I, again, I, I don't know who invented the term, and so I don't know how we would ascertain what is the gold standard pronunciation. Perfect. Okay. Um, so another thing that you mentioned was this idea about the consistency assumption. So I, I believe uh, Steve Cole is the mm. person that I've read some papers on this topic about how, you know, and it's been applied in my own work with where I use obesity as a causal exposure. And when we're talking about obesity as a causal exposure, we're talking about intervening on all of the different ways that you could change someone's obesity status. So exercise, diet, bariatric surgery, et cetera, and we're sort of lumping them all together. And therefore, we're not truly violating the consistency assumption, potentially. Uh, that's one interpretation. That's one sort of generous interpretation of that literature is that you're, you're sort of considering all the different ways. But that's not very informative then for a policymaker who wants to consider one specific way. So there's a way of interpreting that in maybe some kind of a meaningful way. But then the question question of the utility of that finding is still an open question. Like, what are you going to do with that number? You got this odds ratio of three. What are you going to do with that number if you can't hand it to a policymaker and say, you should ask people to lose weight, or you should ask people to exercise, or you should ask people to have surgery, or whatever it is that could lead somebody to change their BMI status, you, you, don't, you don't have an answer to that question yet. Uh, and so can I just ask, every time I read the, about the consistency assumption, or you know, when I first came across it, my first thought was, who ever thought of this? Like, who would have ever come up with the idea, you need to be estimating the effect of some kind of a, a well-defined intervention to be able to determine whether or not there is a, a causal relationship or what that causal relationship is. But it's actually a mathematical relationship, right? We talk about it in terms of the well-defined intervention, but it's actually sort of that mathematical formalization that says that, that if you don't have that well-defined exposure, then you can't go from the observed data to the counterfactual data. Do I have that right? Well, the, the, yeah, it is part of the algebra for how you get from observables to counterfactuals. So a, a step in there requires the consistency assumption so you can replace the things you can't see with the things that you can see. So that is necessary for the algebra. Mm -hmm. But it's also necessary for the logic of it. I think when you explain this to a policymaker, you explain this to a student, you can't just rely on the algebra. The algebra is supposed to reflect reality, not the other way around. We have no obligation to live our lives because algebra says something. We, we want to live our lives in some way that's logically coherent for us. And the consistency assumption makes sense because if, if people 
are getting exposed in lots of different ways that have different implications, then the average exposure effect across all of those different kinds of exposures is this mishmash of different effects. And since they're potentially heterogeneous in their quantification and their value, that final number that you get is kind of an arbitrary weighted average of, of these different pathways that people are taking. You know, if I do a randomized trial and in my protocol, it says people should take aspirin. That's my active treatment. But I don't say like how much they should take. So some people's taking a gram and someone else is taking 27 grams of aspirin every day. They're going to have very, very different effects. So what proportion of people are taking 27 grams and what proportion of people are taking one gram? Well, I'm not setting that in my protocol. So just by luck, maybe 30% are taking one dose and 70% are taking the other. That's going to give me a very different answer from somebody else's study where 5% are doing one and 95% are doing the other. So this arbitrariness of which exposure and which effect magnitude you're getting is the thing that we want to get rid of. When I get pushback from people reacting to the consistency assumption, it's almost always in the form of something like observational epidemiology is hard enough without having to meet the consistency assumption. But if I have to actually be very clear in exactly what the exposure is, and I have to find a population in which I have that exposure, take the obesity example, where I could know what the causes of obesity are, I I could never do any research. And my reaction to that is, well, you can continue to do the research without the consistency assumption, but you may not come away with anything that gives you useful information depends on your definition of useful information and what you're trying to get out of it. I mean, I think there is a kind of a contrary view, like the Magellar non-view about the consistency assumption and the importance of the well-defined exposure is a viewpoint that I embrace myself. I find it very attractive. And I think a big strength of this approach is that it makes a very direct connection between the results of research and uh, policy. Like, you know exactly what to do mm-hmm. based on your numerical value. I got a, I got a odds ratio of 3.7, and now I know exactly what that's going to mean when I impose this on some target population of my policy. But there is another viewpoint that's been articulated by many researchers, I think maybe most successfully by uh, Schwartz at Columbia, Sharon Schwartz, is her, um, which is yep. that much epidemiologic research is actually much more qualitative than quantitative. The fact that I got a 3.7 for my odds ratio is not really the important thing. The important thing is that I discovered that this exposure has a role in producing this outcome. And mechanistically, that's a really important inference for me. And I want to understand this process in a more qualitative way. Not that I'm handing this number to some policymaker and they're going to do something specific with that, but I just want to understand the way the world works. And I don't need the consistency assumption to come to that kind of general qualitative causal inference. So I have a lot of respect for that viewpoint, even though, you know, I'm more attracted to the more orthodox Magellar non-approach. I I have a lot of sympathy for Sharon Schwartz's articulation of this problem. And she has written some very persuasive papers explaining why she holds the viewpoint that she does. I especially appreciate that viewpoint in many instances where you're working with exposures that are not quite as simple as aspirin or the pharmacoepi setting. So I know there's an active debate or some discussion in the epi world about non-manipulable exposures. So what you do with something like biologic sex at birth, potentially age as an exposure, things like that. So where do you stand on how we can use those or we shouldn't use those as exposures in our questions? Well, I also have a chapter in the 
modern epi textbook, and there's some discussion of this in my chapter, and a little bit in chapter three as well. But I guess my viewpoint is that the non-manipulability or the manipulability criterion of causal inference, the way it was first expressed by people like Rubin and, and Holland, has some limitations. The complaint is it's arbitrary in time and space. Like some things, you know, at the time that they wrote about this in the 1980s, one of the examples they used of something that was non-manipulable was gene. Like said, well, you know, you know that a gene might cause some outcome, but you can't quantify that causal effect because we have no way to manipulate that. Well, now, of course, we do. We have CRISPR now. So the things that used to be non-manipulable can become manipulable. And there are many other examples where we understand a causal effect with a great deal of specificity, even though we can't manipulate anything. And the Judea Pearl example of that is like the moon causing the tide. There's no doubt about moon causing the tide. You know, that's quantified to a, a tremendous degree of precision, but nobody is like moving the moon, moon around in order or changing the gravitational constant in order to manipulate that. So there's no doubt about the fact that there are things in the world that we know about and that we understand that really are causal that are not manipulable. But for observational epi, you know, where you're observing exposures about people and then you're making inference about outcome, you want to hand that to some policymaker because you're interested in intervention. You know, I, I think we have to think about the fact that epidemiology is not a theoretical science in the way that physics or chemistry or is. Like, this is not about understanding the natural world. We're a discipline that's embedded within the field of public health, which is a social movement. It's not like a science, ultimately. Like, epidemiology has scientific aspects, but our ultimate purpose is intervening in the real world in order to improve human health. And if our interest is intervening, then this specificity of like knowing how to intervene, taking a, a quantitative result from an epi study and being able to predict the effect of an intervention on a population, that becomes a really crucial strength for us. So although I, I wouldn't say that this kind of well-defined exposure is absolutely necessary in all disciplines and all settings, I think in general for people interested in public health, it's a very important strength. It, it's not necessary, but it's advantageous. I would agree with that. First of all, I love the way you described what the field is all about. Those of us who really enjoy epi method can be far from remembering the goals of, of why we're doing what it is we're doing. But it's always interesting to me, and this is something that Haley and I talked about when we were talking about chapters two and three, is that you know when people present the counterexample of things where there's very clearly a causal effect that we all agree in, they're almost always things that relate to physics and astronomy and you know, things that don't actually relate to the kind of things that we are doing. And my take on this is always when there's a, a fairly simple and straightforward relationship between how things work, it's much easier to be able to be confident that there's a causal relationship because, you know, we understand gravity. We understand how the whole process works. We don't understand how humans work well enough that we can sort of be reliant on being totally confident there's a causal relationship just because we can observe something very consistently in nature over time. Therefore, I, I start to wonder whether some of the debate around can you have a causal relationship if you can't manipulate it is really too much of an academic argument because as you say ultimately what we care about is what we can do and if we can't change it maybe it's something that we want to be thinking about for the future but it doesn't present us with any useful information on how to act today yeah, I uh, I agree with you, and I might play devil's advocate and argue against you, even though I agree yeah. with you. I might just for Please. the purpose of academic argument kind of push back and say that for, for the people who want to study relationships that are not necessarily manipulable in that way, if they can form the theory about the relationship, they might discover a manipulable component of that later on. Mm. You know, for example, it's not a physics example, but I think we would say that trisomy is the cause of Down syndrome. 
for example, is something we observe linked together so that we're pretty confident that when you have one, you must have the other. So I, I think that that's a causal relationship that we'd all accept. We don't have any, as far as I know, we don't have any way to change that. We, it's not manipulable, but it is possible that someday in the future, we will discover the pathway by which trisomy leads to the physical manifestations that we label as Down syndrome, and that we'll be able to interrupt that pathway so that that will not be the outcome anymore. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen or that's not going to happen, but I think that's the kind of logic that people are interested in when they say, we don't need to be able to manipulate this to be able to draw this relationship because it's something that we want to study further, something we want to understand the pathway in greater detail because we might discover a way to manipulate it. I totally agree with that. And I was sort of in some ways going in the opposite direction of saying often we can identify something that we can't manipulate, but it gives us a really good indicator of who is most at risk for a particular outcome. Whether we call it causal or not doesn't really matter because what we need to do is figure out how do we deal with the problem. That was sort of where I was going with whether the, the argument is too academic. But it's funny that it's interesting that you brought up the, the example that you did because trisomy is the example where when I started reading the papers around whether or not you need to be able to manipulate it, something for it to be a cause, you know, I took that very literally and sort of got stuck in this idea that therefore it can't be a cause because we can't manipulate it. But, you know, it took me quite a long time to come around to the idea that I don't know whether it is or it isn't in sort of some very strict definition, but it doesn't matter. It allows us to perfectly identify something that we can use to do, you know, whatever the decision is we need to do. And therefore it doesn't matter whether we call it causal or not, what matters is, does it provide us useful information to base whatever decisions we need to make on? Yeah, you could take a kind of a consequentialist approach that it doesn't matter what labels you put on these things. If you can come up with some policy that improves human health, mm -hmm. then you, you can call it a cause or you can not call it a cause. Like that's, that's just language. That's just labels. And, and I think that's a problem with this. Uh, it gets back to an earlier question that Haley raised about causal models and whether that implies something fancier. I do think that there's a little bit of sloganing that goes mm -hmm. on. Like people want to use, they want to publish a paper, they want to get it past reviewers, they want people to get excited about it. So they'll say, oh, I'm using a causal model. And, you know, whether this is actually better than some non-causal model, however you define that, it, it, it could be just a matter of labeling. You know, I'll take propensity scores as an example. You know, the promise of propensity scores, the really brilliant thing that was shown in the 1983 article by, by Ruben and Rosenbaum, is that this single variable, when you, when you boil down all the covariates into a single score, that that single score does just as well as all the other covariates. Well, that means that when I publish my propensity score paper, I'm doing just as well as the person who modeled all the covariates separately. So I can't say, oh, because I used a causal model, it's better. You know, I'm, I'm simply doing just mm -hmm. as well. But there's an example where I think the, the causal label helps sell the paper as somehow more profound, more elegant, more exciting, more modern. And I see a lot of this, especially around like so-called quasi-experimental method, where people take a lot of things that are questionable in terms of their validity, but because they slap the quasi-experimental label on it, they somehow imply that it's as good as an RCT. And there's just a little bit of strategic labeling. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's a very concise summary of what I was defining as fancy. So, you know, using those methods, you calling sloganing or whatever you said, you know, that's the general idea that people think it's somehow better. Yeah, I guess this is just part of the sociology of 
epi methods that you know there is a little bit of a premium on doing something that's exciting and new and somehow intimidating in terms of the math for a while every time somebody published an IPTW estimator they would put you know the formula for the weights there you know when you publish an OLS you don't put the matrix multiplication for how you got the slope from an OLS you know like cuz that's old hat but somehow you know putting the formula in made it somehow seem like you were on the cutting edge so I, I, yeah i think that's all part of the sociology of the way that methods move into practice and the way that people adopt things and peer review is driven by some of these impressions and it's just the way things are. Okay, since you brought up what it is we need to tell people that we did, how do you feel about uh, whether or not you need to tell people what software package you use to analyze your data? Well, I, I think it's necessary because not only do you need to say what software package you use, you need to actually give them the code because your paper should be completely transparent and replicable. And if someone wants to see exactly what commands you used and what defaults you used, they need to know what the software is and what the commands were. Uh, so I think it's absolutely necessary. I would agree with the last part, but just simply telling me we did our analysis in SAS. Oh no, that's useless. That's just an advertisement for SAS, which is a commercial product. And you're just giving a free ad to the SAS company there. Every time I see it, I expect the next sentence should be, and we wrote the paper in Microsoft Word. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's just as useful. But <laughs> what you really need is the SAS code at the end of your paper so that yep. someone can say, oh my God, you didn't change the default there? What are you doing? Like, that's obviously not the right thing to use there. So yes, the code should be there either in GitHub or in an appendix or somewhere available to the reviewers. I don't know how anybody can review anything now without having access to the code. You know, I, I've tried really hard as an editor at Epidemiology to convince authors to put their code in an appendix. And I can't tell you the number of times that reviewers have said, you know, I was just looking at the code and I noticed that there's this mistake here on line 37. And then the authors are like, oh, wow, thank you very much. We never would have noticed that. Mm. Like there's a huge amount of error, just random. Uh, you know, I did a block and copy and I forgot to change the variable name or I use the default. There are famous examples of people using defaults where they're not appropriate. The example that comes to mind is air pollution work that the Hopkins people were doing, like uh, Scott Seeger and uh, this group uh, that was at Hopkins in the early 90s. And they were looking at diesel exhaust. And, you know, the effects were in like the sixth decimal place. Uh, and they published their papers. And it turned out that they were using the default software for maximum likelihood convergence. And the convergence criteria was like 10 to the minus four. Mm. So it turned out that all the answers were wrong and they had to apologize and publish corrections and stuff like that because these famous biostatisticians didn't think to like change the default convergence criteria in the software they were using. So it, it's a mistake that anybody could make. And back then it wasn't typical for people to post their code. So I, I'm not sure how this came to light, but the point is now that we post our code, you could immediately see that. Mm -hmm. um, so before we wrap up, we're getting close to time, but I really want to leave some time to talk about counterfactuals. I think in my experience, this is a concept that can be difficult for students to see how it's useful in the real world. They understand sort of this counter to the fact idea. You've given someone one treatment and if counter to the fact, what would happen if you gave them the other treatment? I think it's a, it's a great intellectual exercise. But when you're using it in the real world, do you think about it when you are designing a research question or, or you're you know, working with a student? How do you apply these concepts in real life setting? 
Well, yeah, I think it's central to everything that we care about. You know, we ultimately were not interested in associations because, as we said, we're part of an interventionist movement in public health that we actually want to change the world to make people healthier, to make them live longer and be happier. And so thinking about different potential things that we could do and what the consequences of those actions would be is central to why we're all here doing what we're doing. So I, I don't find that to be an academic exercise at all. As we said, I think everybody has an intuitive notion about counterfactuals. People make statements all the time like, oh, if I hadn't missed that bus, I would have been in the Twin Towers when the airline struck. You know, like people say counterfactual statements all the time in English. So it's it's not mysterious to anybody. The only thing that's perhaps new to students is putting them in mathematical notation, saying, you know, why super one is compared to why super zero to represent the outcome that would have occurred if you were exposed or unexposed. I mean, people have to get used to this kind of symbolic representation of their common sense notions about counterfactuals. But since this is is what we care about. This is what we're interested in. I think it's just part of the toolkit that we learn. I, I don't have a sense that it's a difficult or abstract concept underneath the math. No, I, and I don't either. And I, I find that students, when they learn the counterfactuals, find it really useful in, in being able to precisely define effects and confounding and things like that. But where I, I find students often, their next step is to say, okay, but practically, what do I do with this model? Like, wh what do I do differently in my study because of the counterfactual model? And I don't know if you experience that and if you have a way that you respond to that. Well, I, I think the counterfactual thinking is necessary for providing an underlying theory for why we're using that model in the first place. You know, the development of these models, you know, how did we know that IPTW was a good way to achieve standardization? Like someone had to make a proof, you know, and the outcome of that model was not why, it was why super one or why super zero or the, uh, the expected value of a distribution of, of those counterfactuals. So someone had to develop that model with the counterfactual outcome in mind because that was the target, the estimate that people were interested in. So once you actually get the model handed to you and you're applying it, you are fitting some kind of an associational model and you're using causal assumptions to link that associational model with the causal thing that you're interested in. So in practice, for the user of the model, it's, it's not as essential to have that in mind. It's really the developer of the model. How did people come up with new models? They had to be thinking causally. You know, the last big study design that was probably invented, as far as I can think, was the case crossover design that Malcolm McClure came up with. And he just got an award at SCR in June. And he talked a little bit about his thinking, like, how did he come up with this idea? And it goes back to the Maldonado and Greenland paper that Haley mentioned at the beginning of the show about every study design being a clever way of coming up with a substitute population for the counterfactual you can't observe. So his clever approach was to find the same people at a different time. And the different time was the way that you were coming up with the substitute. That line of thinking that came up with a brilliant new method was all based on his concept of the counterfactual. If he didn't have a counterfactual model in his head of what he was going after, what he was trying to get to, he wouldn't have been able to come up with this practical method for coming up with an adequate substitute population. And so it's more in the study design, I think, that people really need to prioritize this. Once you're handed the model, then you're just, yeah, proc, reg, or whatever. You're just doing the, the standard uh, associational model and then using those assumptions in order to get back to the causal effect you're interested in. And how much do you think this would be improved if we were to teach counterfactuals much, sort of the basically the first thing that we do when we start epidemiology? Because my, at least in my experience, most of the time, introductory epi courses are much more around, you know, rates and prevalence, and then how do we divide them and compare them? And we're not talking about the counterfactual model. And certainly it doesn't seem to come up in your introduction 
introductory stats courses. And yet to counter that, the few people that I know who have tried to start the whole process with counterfactuals have found that students often get confused and, and lost. So I don't know if you have a a thought on that? I'm not sure. I, I think every intro course puts a priority on confounding, mm-hmm. and confounding is essentially a, a causal consideration. It can't be viewed statistically. Like, there's no statistical definition of confounding. There's only a causal definition of confounding. And since 1986 in epidemiology, that's been based thoroughly in counterfactuals. And so I, I don't see any other way to teach an intro epi course and have people understand what confounding is, except by using counterfactual. Now, there is the approach that is probably very common in intro courses of just using DAG and saying, oh, you have this backdoor path and that backdoor path is confounding. And I, I mean, I guess that's an effective way of teaching students to be able to recognize confounding, but I don't think they can understand confounding in those terms. You really need the kind of Maldonado and Greenland idea of the substitute population to understand the inadequacy of substitution as the engine of confounding. What is making the, your causal estimate biased? Well, I, I can't observe the counterfactual. And so I'm using people that I do observe and they don't match exactly the distribution and the counterfactuals that I'm interested in. And so this is why I'm getting the wrong answer. That requires building it up from these potential outcomes. And I'm not convinced that you can't do that in an intro course. I'd be curious how many students do get it in an intro course. I certainly did not, but that was a, that was a long time ago. So I teach intro epi and I do introduce it, but I introduce it closer to the end of the semester. I think, Jay, a little while ago, you mentioned, you know, once you've somebody's developed the models, you could just sort of get your software to, to run whatever you need. And, you know, you'll get some kind of estimate as the output of that. And so I introduce sort of those concepts of output. So the, you know, odds ratio, risk ratio, etc. those concepts first, and then get into the counterfactual causal inference type stuff, because you need to understand and in my the way I teach it, you need to understand those kind of associational ideas before you step into this idea that is this an association or am I taking it a step further into saying this is something causal, a causal relationship and you need to understand counterfactuals, etc. But I do include it in an intro course and I think it should be absolutely included in an intro course as an in in between step between understanding some of those effect estimates and before you get into the confounding kind of discussions because I don't think it's helpful. I still have a hard time with DAGs as backdoor paths as the only way for understanding confounding. You know, I introduce it as a mixing of effects and then I, you know, you introduce it as a whole bunch of different ways, but backdoor paths is, is definitely not the most intuitive in my mind. The exchangeability idea I think is more helpful for students who are trying to understand and confounding. Well, there's, there's no doubt that you could have some kind of a concept of confounding without potential outcomes, because in the history of, of epidemiology, there was like 100 years where people had some intuitions about confounding, even though they didn't have this potential outcomes model. When John Snow is writing about the quasi-randomization of the water sources in you know the 1840s and 1850s in, in London, he appeals to this idea that the determinants of water for the individual household had nothing to do with their characteristics, and that this is why he was going to get an unbiased effect estimate. So already, you know, without even any math, really, he already understood the concept of a mixing of effects. And this was throughout the development of then of statistics in the early part of the 20th century and the revolutions in epidemiology in the 1950s and 1960s when people were studying lung cancer and, and smoking and things like that. There was no doubt that there was a concept of confounding that was deeply intuitive and that people were using that concept, even though potential outcomes didn't come around until the 1970s and didn't get put into epidemiology until the 1980s. 
so Jay, I think that's all we have time for today. This hour went by really quickly. And, really you know, I know we all three of us could have kept topping on these topics for a while longer, but I think we'll wrap it up here. So Jay, thank you so much for joining us. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June next year in Chicago, hopefully in person. It also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to give a plug for our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode next month. And just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Bye, everyone.